Well, morning everyone. Uh, really good to be with you all this morning. I think the last time I was doing this, I was sitting at my kitchen table, so it's nice to actually be with you in person. Um, so yeah, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 13 together. The medium is the message. Now, I'm sure that's a phrase that's familiar to many of you. Um, It was a phrase coined by a communications expert in Canada um, called Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s. And it's, it's used today, it was, it was actually an essay, uh, it was, it's used today to, to critique and, and try to help understand the effects of different technologies on our lives. And at the heart of the idea is this idea of how, how we communicate something shapes what you're communicating and how it is received. How you communicate something shapes what you're communicating and how it is received. In a lot of Paul's letters, we see him defending the content of the gospel message. And in today's passage, he does do a little bit of that. Um, But really, he's focusing actually on defending his his method. We saw before that in chapter 1, we saw the power of the gospel um, to, to transform lives, to create this church in Thessalonica. And Paul now wants here to show us the pattern of gospel Ministry. He wants to show us how he communicated the gospel to these Thessalonian believers. Why did Paul feel fall, why did Paul feel a need to defend his ministry among them? Well, let's just have a quick recap of the context of the letter. So we read in Acts, you know, Paul spent a couple of weeks uh, with these believers, um, but unfortunately, uh, the Jewish mob and the authorities in the city forced him out. He, he moved on to Berea, and they eventually heard that he was sharing the gospel there too and they came looking for him and he had to to make a pretty sharp exit. Uh, He he moved on to to Athens then and that's where he he writes this letter from. But from the moment he left Thessalonica he's been worried sick about these young believers. He hasn't had the chance to finish his discipleship explored course with them. It's It's a young church plant he's worried that they won't have the deep roots that are needed to weather this storm of opposition that they're facing. And so when he, when he can bear it no longer, we go on to read in chapter 3, he, he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing. And then this letter of love and encouragement is, is a response to what he hears from Timothy. And chapters 2 and 3 here in the letter are some of the most heartfelt chapters in all of Paul's writing which is saying quite something, you know, he's not afraid to to lay out his emotions um, for people, but we see just some really loving, genuine care um, for these believers here. And so the verses we're looking at today, he's he's defending his ministry. He wants them to genuinely know they've received the gospel. I think it's it's reasonable to assume, and most of the commentators seem to say this, that the, the Jewish authorities would have been dragging Paul's name through the gutter. You know, they're attacking the message to try and sow doubts in the minds of these new believers. If you discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message. And in one sense, Paul's ministry and their faith, they stand or fall together. And so Paul wants to defend himself against these accusations. But he doesn't simply want to defend himself, he also wants to to model for them what true gospel ministry looks like. He wants them to imitate him in their gospel work. And that's really important for us. 
the church will not accidentally fall into doing faithful gospel ministry. Too often the church has attempted to do Jesus' work in very non-Jesus ways. And so we need this teaching to show us what the pattern of true gospel ministry is all about. <clears throat> so look at me um, with uh, verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. Um, it says, but, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our gods to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. True gospel ministry means boldly sharing the gospel. Here Paul talks about how he suffered at Philippi. You know, you can read it in Acts, but he's, he's beaten up um, in the city center and he's thrown into prison. And going to Thessalonica was a case of out of the fire and into the frying pan for Paul. You know, nobody would have begrudged him a couple of weeks off, some time away from the front line to, to recharge the batteries. But he doesn't think of any of that. He goes forward to Thessalonica and he boldly shares the gospel there with them. I guess even that reminds them here how important the message was. His boldness in the face of this opposition showed them he just wasn't there for a holiday. It showed them just how important the message was. We've seen in recent weeks climate change activists doing rather bold things to, to raise awareness and demand action on climate change. And they do it because they want to highlight the importance of their message. And that's what Paul's boldness did for these believers. Boldness is an essential part of gospel ministry, and it won't happen without it. I wonder what kind of things stop you from being bold in living out your faith. Let me share a few of the things that inhibit my boldness. You may be able to identify three things quickly, apathy, approval, and affluence. <clears throat> a lot of the time, I just don't care enough about the gospel. I don't see others' greatest need as being Jesus. I've been a Christian for a while, and over time you lose some of that zeal that you maybe had in another season of life. Often it's people's approval that get in the way. I, I avoid saying anything that has the potential to draw attention to my faith. I don't want people to think differently about me. I'm getting on well with my friends. Why spoil it by mentioning Jesus? Nobody wants to lose friends and alienate people. I think most of the time I'm simply comfortable with how life is right now. Why would I make it more difficult? Material comfort is not a bad thing in itself, but I think we need to recognize what it does to us. You know, the, the drive to make every part of our lives easier, whether through more stuff or technology or whatever means, that does shape how we live. And dare I say it, it even shapes our souls. You see, the, the way of comfort is actually anti-gospel. One of the most helpful books I've read uh, this year has been um, a book by a guy called Paul Miller called The J-Curve. And he says that the Christian life is in the shape of a J. It was the shape of Jesus' life down to resurrection, down to death, up to resurrection. It's the shape of every Christian's life. It shapes how we fight sin. We die to self. We rise to holiness in Christ. It shapes how we view suffering that is outside of our control. Facing trials are a kind of death but they can be used by God to grow us closer to him, to make us hopeful, to remove idols in our lives. And that's all very helpful. But the other way he talks about um, our lives being a kind of J-curve, is that it shapes our lives, is that it causes us to move towards difficulty, move towards things that are hard, voluntarily. 
Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A mindset misshaped by the idol of comfort in our lives will always mean we run away from difficulty, from risk. We'll always take the easiest option. Maybe you can identify with some of those reasons. But is Paul just some sort of super Christian, immune to all the human fears that we all face? Where does his boldness come from? Well, he says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This boldness wasn't some unique quality to him. It was a result of his confidence in God. Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises his presence with his church. He is the one who leads his church in his mission. He is the one charging forward from the front line. Or Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was bold in God, bold in his presence, bold in his love, and bold in the purpose he had for them. The bottom line for Paul was that nothing could separate him from God's love in Christ. And that freed him to be bold in sharing the gospel with others. This is the foundation for us being bold and living out our faith today. The assurance of God's love and presence with us. Do we trust his promises? How can we take steps towards living boldly for God this week? You know, there there will be a pain line for each of us that will need to be crossed no matter what. We need to face up to that. But what might it look like? Some of us will have had many conversations with people over the years about our faith. Some of us will have led people to Christ, praise God. But some of us may struggle to even let people know we are Christians. Well, if that's you, start small. You know, even saying that you went to church on a Sunday can often be quite a good conversation starter. Telling a friend you're praying for something they're struggling with. Inviting a friend to church. It'll be different for each and every one of us. But if you are feeling timid in your faith, start small and be bold in the promises of God. Secondly, true gospel ministry faithfully stewards God's words. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And he goes on to say, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He was entrusted with the gospel message. 
And if you're entrusted with something, you're, you're careful with it, you're, you're responsible to, for looking after it, you're, you're a steward of it. I was given uh, the, the great privilege of being best man at my brother's wedding. And a, a best man has many responsibilities. Um, <clears throat> organizing a stag do, getting the, the groom to the church in time, delivering a rip-roaring speech, and then awkwardly dancing with one of the bridesmaids to finish off the night. That's when his work is done. And I delivered strongly in each of those areas. Uh, but you may have noticed I left out one major thing, the rings. <laughs> Keeping the rings safe, arguably the most important job of all. I only had to look after them from when we left our house to the moment they said, I do, and I, I failed miserably, I'm ashamed to say. I left them in the side pocket of the wedding car. One of the other groomsmen had to end up driving after it to retrieve them. I was very careless in my task. But Paul here is entrusted with the gospel message. He's been given the precious words of eternal life to share with others. And his goal is to, to please God. He wants to be careful with what he's been given. He wants to hear those words at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. But how does he steward the gospel? Well, <clears throat> a couple of things. Firstly, he shares it clearly with them. He tells them the whole gospel. This is important. The, the Thessalonians need to know that they have been told the whole truth. They need to know that they've received the real deal. It's important that he was clear on what he was giving them, what they were receiving. Wife Rachel, she was enjoying a nice share bag of giant watsits by herself one evening, as she's known to do. And she noticed um, what it said on the front of the package. So I don't know if you've had a, a pack of giant watsits, but uh, on the front of the package is just this one big giant one. It cover, covers the whole front of it. And underneath the picture, it says in brackets, not actual size. <laughs> They didn't need to be clear on what they, people were, you know, they were, what they were giving people. Um, but obviously, for, for whatever reason, to avoid any lawsuits, they had to put that on the, the, the bag. But it's the same with the gospel. We need to be clear in what we're sharing, what we're giving people. Paul doesn't just share what Christ has done, but also what Christ demands. We, we read on in verse 12, when he talks about being a father to them, he says that, he exhorted and encouraged them and charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, too often the gospel is just simply shared as an offer of either forgiveness or a ticket to heaven. It is good news about God's love for us, praise God. It is good news about the hope of eternal life. But it's so much more than that. It's a call to follow Christ. It's a call to a whole new way of life. And it does, as we have seen, involve cost. And we only faithfully steward the gospel to the extent that we clearly share the whole gospel, the whole of God's word. I remember being at a, a Christian youth event in my early teens. Um, it's just, this, this particular event does stick out in my mind um, for some reason. But, you know, I would say at least 50% of my year at school were at this event. It was quite, quite a big event. Um, but, yeah, most of, most of my school year were there. Like, I went to quite a small secondary school. We're talking probably about 30 people. Um, from my year alone, but it was, it was quite a big, a big event generally. But we, we heard an evangelistic talk um, about how we could know God's forgiveness in our lives. At the end, the preacher did an altar call, and the vast majority of people there, and most of the people in my class at school, responded positively to the message. Leaving school a few years later, only myself and probably at most two others were still professing faith 
in Christ. The church fails to steward the gospel when it isn't clear on what following Jesus will mean. But also when it doesn't disciple believers to maturity. That's what Paul did. You know, from verse 12 we see he obviously nurtured them. He charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. He showed them what it meant to, to live for Jesus. To walk in obedience. I think we often make too big a distinction between our evangelism and discipleship. You know, we aren't called to simply make converts as the church. We're called to make disciples. Too often the church has been focused on getting people in the front door and less concerned about those quietly drifting out the back. True gospel ministry is not simply about converting them, but discipling them with the word of God. And Paul did that by clearly sharing God's word and will with them. But he not only clearly shares the gospel, he sincerely shares the message with them. He doesn't use it for any sort of personal gain. He said it doesn't come from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He doesn't come with words of flattery. He didn't come to please them. He wasn't interested in manipulating the message to, to gain more traction, to get more followers. He wasn't interested in using it for his own selfish gain. He wasn't interested in growing his platform or brand. There was no apostlepaulministries.com. He didn't come with any ulterior motives, simply to share a message. And you know, it's, it's tragically easy to think of examples of leaders who've fallen into all of these different traps. And we need to pray for our own church leadership to, to, to live to please God and not man. These are temptations that are common to, to all pastors. As a church, we need to prayerfully commit our, our elders and Dom to God as they faithfully steward God's word to us week by week. You know, is your pastor a priority in your, your prayer life? Paul's approved by God here for this work. And we know that God will set apart people for full-time gospel ministry. There is a particular responsibility for those in church leadership here. Pastors are to be faithful stewards of God's word. But that's also everyone's responsibility. Let me explain what I mean. A congregation can actually undermine the faithful stewarding of God's word. They can drive a pastor towards some of these destructive traits. There's a few ways that can happen, but I want us just to focus on one from this passage. How we receive God's word can actually undermine the faithful stewarding of it. When we don't humbly receive it, if you look over at verse 13, the very end of the passage, Paul rejoices, he gives thanks for how they have received his, his gospel message to them, that they received uh, the word of God, accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And he says it's at work in them, which is at work in you believers. They willingly accepted it. They let it change their lives. And when we start thinking, well, I think that message would be great for, for that person to hear, not me when we wish that he wouldn't mention that part of the gospel so much, when we wish that he wouldn't tell us what God's word says about that controversial issue, when we start to do that, when we let the pastor know that, 
we can actually undermine the stewarding of God's word. Too often, a congregation can sit in judgments over a pastor's sermon rather than humbly receiving it like the Thessalonians did here. And that's disastrous for gospel ministry. Don't turn your pastor into a people pleaser. This doesn't mean the pastor can say whatever he likes. We open our Bibles, we follow along with the word to see if it all matches up. But too many preachers and pastors face the temptation to alter their message for their audience. The temptation to, to not say that thing in case that person challenges me again. The temptation to just leave that verse out because I just don't have the energy to deal with another email on Monday morning. Don't turn your pastor into a people pleaser. Help him towards faithfully stewarding God's word and sharing the gospel with others clearly and sincerely. Finally then, true gospel ministry models gospel living through costly love. Look down at verse 8 with me. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. It's really strong language, isn't it? There can hardly be a more passionate, heartfelt, loving verse in all of Paul's writing. This is the love that gospel ministry demands. Sharing not only the gospel, but also your own self. You can feel Paul's love for them just oozing out of this verse. I wonder if you've ever felt that kind of way towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul uses um, the, the metaphors of um, being like a mother and a father to them to help us understand what this love looks like. And that does help us to grasp something of the depth of love Paul's talking about here. You know, my guess would be that most of us, for most of us, the only time we've ever felt this kind of way towards others is within our, our families, whether that be towards our parents or spouse or kids. They inspire this kind of genuine, I'll, I'll do anything for you kind of love. But for others, for your church, it seems incredible, doesn't it? Paul is talking here about strangers who have become family to him. They have become his children in the faith. And this deep love was at the heart of his gospel ministry. They've become family to him. So let's look and see how he loved them. Firstly, he used this metaphor of being gentle, like a nursing mother. It's a really just tender image, isn't it? We met our little nephew um, down in England a few weeks back. He's only three months old. And uh, we, we stayed with my sister uh, and her husband uh, for the weekends. But I, I, I got up to the toilet on a Saturday night. It was about two o'clock, uh, middle of the night. And as I come out of the toilet, I realized that there's light seeping around the edges of the living room door. And my sister is up middle of the night feeding little baby Arthur. The gentle love of a mother is a really beautiful thing. It gives without expecting anything in return. It doesn't resent the, the lack of sleep. It loves and it moves towards the need. And so it was with Paul. These people were strangers, but he moved towards them in love. Genuine, gentle, caring love. In verse 9, we see that he removes every barrier to them hearing the gospel. 
He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He wasn't some big-name preacher flown in, put up in a hotel, given the VIP treatments. No, he found work. He, he paid his own way. He didn't want to burden any of them. He didn't want anything to get in the way of them hearing and responding to the gospel. Verse 10, we see how he, he walked with holiness and integrity when he was with them. Took that seriously. In verse 11 through 12, we see how, like a father, he exhorted and encouraged them. It filled his heart with joy to see them walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. He, he rejoiced in their spiritual growth. Yeah, we see that from verse 13 as well, for, in how they accepted the word and, and let it get to work in their lives. He rejoiced in their spiritual growth. Our little niece is, is 15 months old. I've only got one niece and one nephew, so don't worry, this is the end of the, the baby illustrations. Um, but a few weeks back, we got the video through in WhatsApp that we'd all been waiting for. Hannah's first steps. And you know, it was, it was quite funny to watch. It wasn't particularly graceful. It was more of that sort of exaggerated sort of penguin walk swaying from side to side. But she was walking and it was a time of rejoicing. It wasn't perfect, but she was walking. And Paul rejoiced and gave thanks that these believers were beginning to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, it would be weird if my brother and his wife just let my little niece figure out the rest for herself, you know, so stick them, set her at the bottom of the stairs or just let her loose outside in the field. Work out, work out the rest for yourself. No, well, she's going to need patient nurturing and correction. And it's the same with the gospel. And that's what Paul does here. He nurtures them towards the people God called them to be, like a father. This encouraging discipline that he does with them. And in all of these different ways, he models the gospel to them. This is the kind of life of love that the gospel produces and, and demands. And it is summed up in that verse 8 that we started with. He gave his whole self to them. There's real openness there, isn't there? Paul's life was a, a billboard for displaying the gospel to them. Every part of his life was given to this mission. And that's what he wants them to, to remind them of. He wants them to know the genuineness of his ministry, of his love towards them. And he appeals to what, what they already know. They were witnesses and recipients of this love. He says, for you remember, for you know. They can look back and remember, actually, yes, Paul was this loving to us. He treated us like family because of the gospel. The temptation for the church in our culture will be to retreat, to pull up the drawbridge, hide behind the castle walls, and wait for the cultural winds of change to, to blow over. Well, that's not what God wants for his church. The gospel demands this costly love that goes towards the need rather than away from it. Costly love that displays the gospel to the world. And what's that going to look like? Well, I don't know if you've come across um, a great little book by um, an American author called Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And um, I, I could have just quoted one whole chapter from her book, but it's, it's a really good place to start in, in helping us to apply some of this. 
Here's her definition of radically ordinary hospitality. I think it's really helpful. Radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbours and neighbours the family of God. People who live like this see their homes not as theirs at all, but God's gifts to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Radically, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbours and neighbours the family of God. I think that fits really well with what we're thinking about here. The costly love. We're drawn to love people when we see people in need. When we think people are too far away from the gospel, you know, that person's far too content to need the gospel. That person's suffered far too much. They would never be open to the gospel. That person thinks differently from me. How could they ever believe? We have to stop seeing people like that. We need to see others how God sees them. People made in the image of God, walking in the destructive path of sin, desperately in need of Jesus as King and Saviour of their lives. Desperately in need of grace and never beyond the reach of grace. We need to move towards others in love. That doesn't mean people become projects either. We don't love them simply in the hope that they come to faith in Christ. No, we meet them with a genuine care for them. We are good friends with people. We are the, the best kind of family members. We have a genuine love for others and care for them. Too often relationships are just simply about sort of mutual benefit. Being friends with someone is good for a time until we decide that they, we aren't getting much from them anymore and we just move on to see them in our families often as well. And we need to genuinely love others for the sake of the gospel. And that means letting people into our lives, showing the gospel in how we think about life and how we prioritize our church family and how we parent our kids and how we pray and how we fight sin. We need to let people in so that they can see what makes us tick. In the midst of all that, we pray for opportunities to clearly share with them the hope that we have in Christ. True gospel ministry, as we've seen here, is about bringing people into the family of God. And we need to develop these kind of real deep relationships in our church too. Real, open, genuine care for one another. Do you see church as family? Where the gospel is flourishing, people will be sharing their lives and their souls with one another. The past 18 months have been really hard. They've been, they've been disconnecting for so many of us. I'm sure all of us have felt that in some way or another. Drifting away from friends or from church. We need to make this type of genuine love a real priority in our lives. Who can you reconnect with? Who can you share your life with more? You know, in a world where people struggle to actually properly, deeply connect with others, the church as this community of genuine love can be a really powerful apologetic for the gospel. So how can you use your home to share your life with others this week? It's a huge challenge, isn't it? How can we possibly love like this? This is the love that the gospel demands. But it's also the love that the gospel supplies. The burden might feel quite heavy at the moment. I find all this quite challenging myself. I fall so far short of all of this. Responding to the call to be bold, to love in a really sacrificial way for the gospel, is impossible in our own strength. 
when we're focused on our own talents, our own personalities, it's impossible. We need to be bold in God and in his love. Christ is constantly moving towards us in gentle, patient love. Even as we struggle in the fight against sin, even as we feel timid in our faith, even as we feel inadequate for the task. As we heard from Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That is the fuel and the foundation of all gospel ministry. And thankfully there's no fuel crisis in heaven. God's love will never run dry. So as a church, let's be involved in true faithful gospel ministry. Boldly seeking to share our faith. Faithfully stewarding God's word. And modeling the gospel through costly love for others and for one another as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? When we see Paul's ministry here to the Thessalonians, um, yeah, we see how far short of um, true gospel ministry that we, we often are, Lord. But we want to thank you that you have given us a gospel to share. We want to thank you that we have the assurance of your great love towards us in Christ. We want to thank you that we can be bold in your plan and your presence with us. And we pray that you would help us to move towards others boldly in love, genuinely caring for them. We pray that you'd show us how we can be using our homes to share our lives with others and let people see the difference the gospel does make. And Father, we pray for opportunities to openly share the hope that we have in Jesus. He is the one that all of us need and everyone out there needs too. And we pray that you would give us just a real heart for, for others to go and, and make disciples as your church. We pray this now in Jesus' name.